Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. So who here believes, who here knows that God has a plan and a purpose for his people? Who knows that? Who believes that? Right. And who also knows, who feels sometimes like that plan and that purpose can seem far away, that it can seem out of sight, that it can seem like we're, we're not going to make it to that promise, to that plan that God has for us. It feels that way sometimes, right? And we're also, where God has us, the city, the place, where God has us, not only does He have a plan and a purpose for our lives, for His people's lives, but He has a plan and He has a purpose for the place that He has us here and now while we await that future promise that God has for us. So that's the big idea that I want you all to leave with, leave with this morning, is that we are exiles, we are sojourners, we are wanderers, and we are waiting for this future promise, this future fulfillment of God's plan in our lives. But while we are waiting for this promise to come to fruition, God has a plan and a purpose for the city that we find ourselves in while we're waiting patiently. So if you could grab your Bible, turn to the book of Jeremiah. We are going to be in chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. So God's people had forsaken Him and worshipped idols. God had made a covenant with the people through Moses. If you go back to the book of Exodus, and he had told them that if they would obey his voice, if they would keep his commandments, that they would be prosperous, that he would bless them. Further, that they would be a blessing to to the nations. But because of their sinfulness, because of their hard hearts, they had not trusted the Lord. They had not found their pleasure in the Lord. They had intermarried with pagan cultures. Some of them have even sacrificed their own children on the altars of false gods. And their kings, their, their spiritual leaders, their political leaders had all become corrupt. They had broken God's commandments. And so God raises up a prophet named Jeremiah to plead with his people to repent and return to the Lord. He tells them that if they continue in their evil ways, that God is going to send judgment on the people of Israel. He says there is a boiling pot in the north, and its name is Babylon. And if they continue this way, then the Babylonian empire, they're going to come down from the north, And the people of Jerusalem will face sword, they will face famine, they will face pestilence, and that ultimately they're going to be sent, captured, brought into exile, and that their nation would be destroyed because of their sin. That's the message that Jeremiah is bringing. But he tells them also that if they would repent, that if they would put their trust back in the Lord, that he would forgive them, that he would relent, that he would turn his anger away from them. And so for 40 years, Jeremiah prophesies, for 40 years, years. Jeremiah prophesies in Judah and he pleads with God's people. He's often referred to, I'm sure you've heard, uh, as the weeping prophet, right? Because he, was, he so often revealed his, his heart and laments for the people of Israel as you read through the book of Jeremiah. And so for decades, Jeremiah prophesies and he calls the people to repentance, but God's people refuse. And in, in 597 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian empire, they sweep in. They take 3,000 Israelites captive. They destroy the city of Jerusalem a decade later, and they destroy the temple. They destroy the dwelling place of God with his people. And so that's where we pick up in Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah is writing a letter to those who have survived this exile to to Babylon, 
And he's reminding them of God's plan, of, their, of his purpose, and he's instructing them on how they ought to live while they're waiting as aliens in this foreign land. So that's where we pick up Jeremiah chapter 29. Let's read verses 1 through 5, and we'll walk through uh, these chapters together. Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14, and it says this. It says, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeseniah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Babylon has taken captive over 3,000 people from Judah. He's taking their king, their queen, their political leaders, their spiritual leaders, their artisans. That's what it means when it says their craftsmen, their metal workers, the skilled people, the tradesmen that were in Jerusalem. And they have left Judah destitute. God's people, they've become exiles. One commentator refers to them as resident aliens. They're aliens because they're, they're away from their home country, and they are residents because they're not just there for the weekend, right? If you go back to chapter 25, God's prophecy is that they're going to be there for 70 years. So they are resident aliens. And my question to you this morning is, did you know that we are also exiles, right? Here in Beaumont, we are also exiles, that we are sojourners in a foreign land. And to be clear, so the, the exiles that the Israelites were facing, right, they're facing this because of God's judgment, Right, because of the sin that they had committed, God has sent in Babylon, and He has taken them captive, and He's judging them for, for their sin. So we're not, we're not exiled in the same way that God's people were. We're not in exile because of our sin, but we are in exile. And what we see in this passage that I find so compelling is we see a shadow of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this message right here. We see the gospel of Jesus because Jesus took upon himself God's judgment in our place and became the true exile, leaving heaven and coming to earth, that he was a sojourner in a foreign land. And so now we wait in the same way as exiles, as aliens, as sojourners, as Jesus did, awaiting for him to come back for his people. So just as God's people in Israel were sojourners, aliens, exiles in this foreign land, so we are exiles in a foreign land. And Paul tells us this, right? When we read his letter to the church in Philippi, he writes that our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. And we hear the same thing from Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he refers to God's people as sojourners and exiles. And we probably see the clearest uh, example of this truth when we read Hebrews chapter 11, right? This is the great hall of fame, the faith hall of fame chapter that we read in the book of Hebrews, and it says that ever since the days of Abel, right, Genesis, ever since the days of Abel, God's people have always considered themselves aliens because they were seeking another homeland. They were seeking after a better country. And God says that this is a heavenly country, a heavenly city that he has prepared for them. And so we live in this same exiled state, and we feel this tension, right? Like we, we feel the weight of this exile. The great apologist C.S. Lewis, 
in probably his most famous book, you, you may have read it, Mere Christianity. He says this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. So we all, we, we feel this weight. We feel it in times of joy, right? Because it's fleeting. We feel like it's never going to last. And then we feel it again in times of sorrow that we feel is never going to end, right? We, we feel this longing that there's got to be something more. One of my favorite musical artists that capture this so well when they sing this, they say, there are a thousand joys that show me home, but it never lets me stay. There's so many joys that we find fleeting and sorrows that we seem to find will never end. And so just as God's people were exiles in Babylon, so also we are sojourners in this world while we wait for Jesus to return for his bride, for the church. But listen to this. Look how Jeremiah instructs God's people to live while they are in Babylon. He gives them very clear commands, very clear directions on how they ought to carry themselves while they're awaiting God's uh, deliverance from Babylon back to Jerusalem. He doesn't tell them to withdraw. He doesn't tell them to you know, withdraw from society, just keep quiet, be peaceful, don't make any noise, don't cause a ruckus. He tells them to settle in. He says, you're going to be here for 70 years. Get comfortable. It's going to be a while, right? He tells them that while they are waiting, they have work to do. That while they're waiting, they have work to do. So let's read verses 5 through 7. He tells them this. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So God's telling them, I want you to establish a presence in this city. I mean, look, look what he says in these commands. Look, look, look closely at the verse, chapter 5. He doesn't just tell them to build houses, plant gardens, and take wives. Right? He says to build houses and then live in them. He says to plant gardens and then eat their produce. Take wives, but then have sons and daughters. And then take wives for your sons and give them in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. So he's not telling them to just get comfortable to withdraw from the city. He's telling them that they are going to have meaningful, full lives that they are going to live in Babylon. I mean, what happens in your neighborhood when someone begins to build a house? Is, I mean, do you notice it, right? When you notice the foundation being laid and the beams coming up, you're like, okay, somebody, somebody new is coming in to the neighborhood, right? That's what he's telling them. He says, build houses, make a presence, greet your neighbors, right? Live in these homes, start a business, plant, and then eat the produce, reap the fruit of your labor, get a job, work, become a part, a functioning member of the community that you find yourself in. So his command is to, to live this full, meaningful lives. I mean, look at the generations of God's people that are going to be established in Babylon. Look at the generations of the people that are going to be established there. There's the elders. These are those who were past childbearing years, but they survived that initial journey into exile, right? So there's a generation. And then there's another generation who are able to bear children. And then he tells them to do so, to bear children. So there's another generation. And then he tells them to have children, grandkids. So there's going to be four generations of 
Israelites that are going to be coming up in Babylon as they await God's deliverance from, from their exile. So we have to remember that God made a promise to Abraham, right? God promised Abraham, he said that your lineage, your seed, your children will be more numerous than the sands of the seashore, right? That it would be endless, that it would be countless, too big to number. And so God tells them, multiply and do not decrease. Look, there was a very real possibility that this would be the end of the Israelites. It could have been through death. It could have been through assimilation into the Babylonian culture. But there was a very real possibility that this could have been the end of God's people. But God was not going to let that happen. So he tells them to multiply and do not decrease. And so for us here, redemption, here in in Beaumont, we're sojourners here, right? While we are here, just as he expected the Babylonian culture for the Jewish people living there to become functioning members of that society, to live full, meaningful lives. He's telling you, redemption, here in Beaumont, while you are here, live a full, meaningful life. Build houses and live in them. Plant and eat the produce. Take wives and husbands. Have children. Have grandchildren. Live meaningful lives while you're here because we have a responsibility to build a future for the generations that are going to come after us. And every one of us has a role to play in that future generation. Look at verse 7 again. It says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in to exile. We have work to do, redemption. We have a job. We have responsibilities while we are here, while we are exiles. But what does that mean? What does that mean to seek the welfare of the city? There's another word that could be used here for welfare. It could, you could use the word shalom or peace. So you could read it as this, Seek the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its peace you will find your peace, your shalom. So notice he doesn't say to seek peace in the city, right? He doesn't tell them withdraw, don't make any noise, you know, don't stir up any trouble. He tells them to seek the peace of the city where he sent them, which is to say that they ought to be working to make this city a better place. Don't seek peace in the city, but seek the peace of the city. That they're to be working for shalom, for this peace to take root in the city. And why would God tell them to do that? I mean, does that, does that cross your mind? These people have taken them into captivity. They have murdered their loved ones. They're soon going to return to Judah and destroy their home country and burn down the temple of God. That hasn't happened yet when Jeremiah sends this letter. So all of this is happening, and God says, seek the peace of that city. Seek the shalom, the welfare of that city. And the reason God commands them is here in the same verse. For in its peace, you will find your peace. So there's an author, Kevin DeYoung. He's the pastor of Christ Covenant Church in North Carolina. And he puts it this way. I like the way that he says it. He says, the letter that Jeremiah sent to the exile seems to be saying, if things go well for Babylon, things will go well for you. If it thrives, you will thrive. If it gets rich, you will get rich. But if it gets invaded, you'll get invaded. If it suffers famine, then you'll suffer famine. If it dies, then you'll die. So as as hard as it may seem, I don't want you to work against Babylon. This is the time for you to work with the city and for the city, not against it. So the welfare of the Jewish people of the Israelites was in the welfare of Babylon. 
And so in its peace, you will find peace. So just because this is not our home, just because we are exiles, just because we are sojourners, that doesn't absolve us of the responsibility to care for the city that God has placed us. And as a matter of fact, it really should be the complete opposite of that. To quote C.S. Lewis again, he says this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next one. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. So our longing, our desire, our waiting for this better country, this better city should compel us to take better care of the current city that we find ourselves in. And so what does that mean for us, redemption? What does that mean for those of us who live here in this city, or any city for that matter? Well, it means at least this. It means that we care for our city and we care for those who live in it whenever we can and whatever way is possible, right? So it's going to look different for everybody. I mean, at the most basic levels, look, it means you ought to be a good neighbor, right? Be a good neighbor. You should be an enjoyable coworker. Don't be the complaining, backbiting, gossiping coworker. Be a good student. Be a friendly classmate. Look, join city council and try to impact legislation in the city of Beaumont. Contribute to the arts. Start a local business. Don't litter. Not even banana peels. All right, and I only know that because the other day I had to Google it because I was about to throw one out of my window and I got nervous. So I Googled it and it said, yeah, that's littering because it'll draw rodents to the road. I digress. <laughs> but caring for your city, look, it means this. It means that you embrace people from different ethnic backgrounds. It means that you don't judge other people who might be of a different socioeconomic status than yourself. Right? That's what it means to care for the city. It means caring for the poor, caring for the orphans, caring for the widows. That's true religion, James says. That's what it looks like to care for our city. And it also means this. It means that you are to pray for the prosperity of the city. And think for a moment how difficult this had to be for God's people. Think about how difficult this had to be that they're going to pray for their captors, They're going to pray for the people who just murdered their mother and their father, their sons and their daughters. They're going to pray for the people who are going to come in in the next 10 years and burn down their city to the ground. And God says, yeah, I want you to pray for them. I want you to pray for the prosperity of the city. Pray for their political leaders. doesn't mean you have to agree with their ideologies, but you're going to pray for them. And you're going to pray for the welfare of the city. And this is actually the only time in the entire Old Testament where we hear this echo of Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount where he says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The only time we see this in the Old Testament. And so we ought to pray for our, our city. We ought to pray for our political leaders because in this city's peace, we'll find our peace. When there's peace... In the city of Beaumont, we will find our peace. So seek the welfare of the city because God has placed you here for a reason. When you read in Acts 17, Paul says that God has determined the boundaries of man's dwelling place so that they would seek after God. That means you have a role to play redemption here in Beaumont. God has placed you here. He has established the boundaries of your lives here in Beaumont so that you would lead other people to know the Lord. You have a role to play One commentator put it this way, you are called to love the city, not leave it. You're called to love the city, not leave it. Look, you cannot convince me that Beaumont is worse than Babylon. You cannot do it. Seek the city's welfare. And so as Jeremiah writes to the exiles 
he starts to experience this opposition, right? He starts to experience some backlash based upon the, the prophecies, the words that he's telling the people of Israel. And he's experiencing this opposition in the form of false prophets. And contextually, if you read chapters 27 through 29, really this whole section of Scripture is really about false prophets. All right, that's really what Jeremiah is talking about for those three chapters. He's focusing on this opposition that he encounters in the form of false prophets. So let's read what it says in verses 8 and 9. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So in the previous chapter, if you go back to chapter 28, we read about a false prophet there named Hananiah, and he was prophesying falsely that Judah's exile was going to only last for two years. Only two years, not the 70 years that God had told them that they would be in exile. So God kills him. And then in the latter half of chapter 29, God deals with the prophet Kaliah and Zedekiah who were speaking lies in God's name and then committing adultery with their neighbors' wives. And the king of Babylon roasted them in fire. And then in verse 24, we meet the false prophet Shemaiah of Neelam who was actively fighting and rebelling against God's command for his people to settle in Babylon and to establish their presence there. So he's fighting against this command to make a presence in the city. He's telling them, look, we're not going to be here that long. All right, just set up some tents. Like, you don't need to build houses. You don't need to plant. Like, that's not God's, that's not God's plan. And he's fighting, rebelling against God's plan for them to establish this presence in Babylon. So if you keep reading, God tells Shem, uh, Shemaiah that he's never going to see the fulfillment of the promises that God has for his people, and further, that none of his descendants will ever live among the people of God. So God takes these false prophets very seriously in his response and in the way that he deals with them. But regarding the false prophets for us, redemption, I would simply say this, look, if God is calling you to the city, be obedient. If God is calling you to the city, then be obedient to that call. Do not rebel. Do not actively fight against the call that God has on your life to be here in the city. Love the city that God loves and seek the welfare of the city. Be obedient to God's call. So as we get closer to the end of the text, we find that, that God's people, they're in this state of uncertainty, right? They're in this state of confusion. You know, they've heard all this talk from the false prophets, some of them telling, telling them, you know, you're only going to be here for two years. You don't need to settle in. You know, you're not going to be here for the 70 years that Jeremiah keeps talking about. This madman is what Shemaiah calls him in chapter 29. Excuse me, yeah, later in chapter 29, he says, you're only going to be here two years. You don't need to, you're not going to be here the whole, the whole 70. And so they're confused. They don't know, do they believe Jeremiah? Do they believe what God had originally told them? Do they believe these false prophets? Right? And then you have to think of the situation they find themselves in. Right, They've watched their families be destroyed. They've watched their homes be destroyed. They've watched their entire country be destroyed. And they've got to be wondering, God, what are you doing? God, where are you? Is your word true? Can we actually trust you? And so my question for you, Redemption, is have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like God is, is far off? That you have felt lost? You have felt hopeless, you have felt unsure, uncertain, wondering where God is and what is He doing? 
questioning whether God is there at all. Asking yourself, why, why can't I shake this sin in my life that just holds me captive? Why is my family falling apart? Why am I suffering? And so God's going to respond to His people and He's going to respond to us. He says this in chapter 10, excuse me, verse 10, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So he's telling his people that, look, he knows there are false prophets and that they don't know who to listen to, okay? He understands their predicament, the situation they find themselves in. When things aren't, aren't going the way we hoped, you know, it, it becomes easy for us to have itching ears, for us to listen to any advice, to any voice that seems to comfort us. And that's where Israel found themselves in the midst of their suffering. They just wanted to hear some good news, right? They just wanted to hear something to give them a little bit of comfort. And we do the same thing. But God is saying, listen to me. He's saying, I am the source of truth. And so he restates that promise that he had made to his people just a few chapters earlier. It's in chapter 25. If you go back, this is where Jeremiah first makes the prophecy that they're going to be in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. So he restates his earlier promise that he had given them before they had gone into captivity. And so God had already told them what would happen. He already told them about uh, what was awaiting them, but their suffering and their deception had snuffed out God's word. Look, the word that God gives them is not easy. It's a hard word that he gives them. He says, you're going to be here for 70 years. 70 years will have to pass. You have to be patient. You have to be patient. And so we come to verses 11 through 14, and really these are probably, especially verse 11, probably one of the most quoted passages in the entire Bible. Jeremiah 29, 11. If I were to ask you to raise your hand if you had this tattooed on you, I would probably get some hands go up in the air right now. If I asked you if you had this on your wall, in your house, in a picture frame, probably all the church would put this hand up, right? One of the most popular, most powerful messages in the entire Scriptures because it contains so much truth, so much comfort, but only when we understand it in its context. Because while this might be one of the most popular passages in the Bible, one of the most common, most quoted passages in the entire Bible, it is also one of the most misunderstood passages in the entire Bible. Ripped from its context more often than probably any other passage in the entire Scripture. So I want to take a moment and I want to walk through this passage because when we truly understand it, when we truly grasp it, there is so much truth, so much power in what God is telling His people here in these verses. So let's read verses 11 through 14, uh, Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me. And when you, when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Amen. Amen. What a passage. What a promise that God has given His people. But before we get into the, the application here, look, I want to just take a brief moment, and I've got to explain away some of the misconceptions about this passage, because until we do, we are not going to fully experience what God has for you 
in these passages. So for Jeremiah, firstly, look, this verse is not directed toward any one specific person. This is not an individual promise that God is making. He is making a corporate promise for all of God's people, right? And it's very similar to the promises that God makes to us as Christians when you read Ephesians chapter 1. That these blessings, these promises of our salvation, they're for the entire church corporately. If you go back and read Ephesians 1 and count the number of times that Paul says we in reference to the blessings of our salvation. We, the church. And this promise is also not for here and now. Although when it's interpreted correctly, there are blessings for us now. They're just not what we think they are. So we just have to be careful that when we read this passage that we don't read it as though God has some blessing for us in store right around the corner. That's not the promise that He made to God's people. This, pom- this promise is not going to come to pass for multiple generations. And think about it, many of these people who heard this promise, they're not going to be alive when it's finally fulfilled. Many people will die before this promise is fully realized. This promise is, is in the future, but sometimes what happens is our earthly desires they can sometimes lead us to remove this passage from its context to suit our own needs. And and the only reason I'm stressing this is because, look, I don't want you to end up feeling like you've been lied to or that you can't trust God. Because what happens is this, if if we never see the blessings that we decided that God is going to give us, then what happens to our perception of who God is? That if the, the promotion doesn't come, that we don't get into the college that we wanted to get into, our marriage is not restored, our children never come home. One author writes, responding to this passage, he says, we have no right to hold God hostage to a promise that we've misunderstood. But just as there was a greater promise for God's people then, there is and always has been a greater promise for us. So let's, let's look at this passage again, and I want us to see the truths uh, that this passage teaches us. So it says this again in verse 11, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So the first thing is this, look, God has a plan. God has a plan. God knows the plan. And the God that has the plan and knows the plan is the same God that's going to make sure the plan is implemented, right? It's the same God. He knows the plan, and He's going to make sure that this plan comes to pass. And is that not good news, church? That God is in control of His own plans, that God knows what He's going to do? And look, our God has always had a plan, He's always had a plan. He always has a plan, and He's the one that will see that it's accomplished. But not only that, church, but we have a promise from God that all of His plans will work out for the good of what? Of who? Of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that all things work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So if we could just understand that reality that God is always present, that He is always in control, that He is sovereign, then we would pull so much more from this passage. And look, I'm not telling you that when you go out and you experience tragedy or you encounter someone who's suffering that the first thing that you should do is, well, Romans 8, 28, you know, all things are going to work together. That's not how you deliver that message to somebody. But the truth is this, that passage is reality. That all things do work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. 
So that might not be the best delivery method in that moment, but it's absolutely true, and we need to understand it, and we need to believe it, that yeah, God's plan was to bring them into captivity for 70 years, and that many of them would die before that promise was received, and their home country would be burned to the ground, and the temple of God, the dwelling place of God amongst His people, would be burned to the ground. He said that the city of Jerusalem would be a disgrace to the nations. If you go and read ahead in the book of Lamentations about what Jerusalem looked like, after Babylon came in and destroyed their city. It's horrifying. Parents eating their children because they were so hungry. And God is saying, I'm working this for your good. Something good is going to come out of this. In the worst of scenarios, the worst of situations, the most tragic of situations, God is working something good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Look, God's plan was not an easy plan, but it was a good plan. All of God's plans are good plans. Look, God is the one who sent the people into exile in the first place. That's what it says. If you go back and you read verse 4, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God sent them there. This was God's plan. It was not an easy plan, but it was a good plan. But the plan also has God as the one who saves them. God sent them there, and God will also be the one who rescues them. Look, we don't always need to know what God is doing. We simply need to know that if we rest in the assurance that God is good, then every and all scenarios will work out for our favor. We rest in the assurance that God knows what He is doing and that He is good in every situation. That's what we need to know. So God's plan for Israel is to restore them back to Jerusalem, to gather them back from the nations. And these are good plans. These are hopeful plans. But God's plan for His church is so much greater than what He had for the exiles to return to. God's plan for His church is so much greater They've always, always longed for something greater. We've always longed for something more, just as, just as all of God's people have always done for this heavenly city, in there, which there will be no sorrow, no grief, no suffering. But I need you to hear this, church, that those hearing Jeremiah's access would have had access to all of those blessings as well if only they would have sought after him. All of the promises that we receive now in Christ, they would have been available to them if they would have sought after Him, but we know that this is the story of redemption, right? Redemption in the Bible, not redemption church. That this is the story of biblical history, that they don't. They turn away again and again and again. But they would have had access to these blessings if they would have only sought after Him. But Jeremiah talks about this Greater promise. Just a few chapters later, if you keep reading, when you get into chapter 31 and chapter 32, we read about this day that is coming when there's going to be a new covenant, that God is going to write His law on the hearts of His people, that He's going to forgive their sins, that they are going to be His people, and He is going to be their God. Just a few chapters later, we have this even better promise, better than, hey, I'm going to bring you back from exile to Jerusalem. He says, no, there's a better Jerusalem. There's a new Jerusalem. There's a heavenly city. There are better promises. There's better things than just bringing you back to Jerusalem, than just bringing you back to Judah. And this is the covenant that Jesus established for His people on the cross. 
and all of those blessings from that sacrifice, we can experience them right here and right now. You don't have to wait 70 years to experience God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. You don't have to wait 70 years to begin producing the fruit of the Spirit. You don't have to wait 70 years to experience peace, and you don't have to wait to experience God's forgiveness. These are all things available for you now. So don't sell this passage short of the greater plans that God has for you. Call upon the Lord, pray to the Lord, and He will hear you. Seek the Lord with all your heart, and you will find Him. That's the promise. That's the greater promise. As a church, I encourage you this morning, look, be patient while you wait for God's promise. Be patient while you wait for God's promise. The healing, the deliverance, whatever it is that you're looking for this morning, look, it very well may be experienced here and now. Don't leave here thinking that I'm telling you that that's not possible, because it absolutely is. It absolutely is. But the truth is this, that whether we experience it or not, God is good and His plans are good. God is good and His plans are good. Our God is great and He is gracious. So if we don't experience it now, just be patient. Just be patient. You know, I was talking to uh, Byron the other day. We were going over the passage. He asked me, you know, if I'd be willing to preach. He said, absolutely, as long as I can preach the New Testament. He said, okay, great. I'm going to get you to preach out of Jeremiah. I said, okay, I can do that. We were talking about the passage, and something that really stood out to me in this passage as I was reading and as I was praying and preparing was not just that God's people need to be patient, but it was how patient is God in this story. How patient is God in this story that for 40 years He pursued His people. For 40 years He sent Jeremiah and said, if you would repent, if you would turn, then I will be there waiting for you. For decades He waited for them, and then He sends them into captivity. And he waits for 70 more years. And he says, I'm being patient. I'm waiting for you. If you would only seek me, if you would only call out to me, if you would only pray to me. For 40 years and then 70 more, he pleaded with his people to repent and return to him from exile. So God has been patient with us. Amen. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at The Gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 9.30 or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.